making sure that you're raising when your balance sheet is already quite strong. So we always had a very strong handle on liquidity and on our cash balance. All of those things extended our runway in terms of our ability to, you know, negotiate terms and to close. And so we were never going to be put into a situation where we were feeling nervous about our cash position. And I think the other thing is that you've got to have lots of optionality. Hello, and welcome to another episode of The Backbone, a podcast exploring the journey of finance and operations within tech companies. I'm your host, Shabam Data at Shabam on Twitter. If this is your first episode, welcome, and thanks for checking it out. For those returning listeners, I'm so glad you're here. I hope that you've subscribed, rated, and reviewed the show on whichever platform you're hearing this now. It would mean so much to me and help spread the stories of these amazing finance leaders we feature on The Backbone. Joining me on this episode of The Backbone is Ali Khan Masani, CFO at Cement, a company that is scientifically transforming the debt recovery industry by combining behavioral science with advanced analytics to treat individuals with empathy. Ali is an accomplished finance executive with over 20 years of leadership experience, most recently focused on successfully guiding entrepreneurial growth-based organizations through the peaks and troughs of their business cycles. Ali has brought this rigor and enthusiasm to the executive team at Cement. Ali has managed financial forecasting and reporting, insurance, risk, treasury, and capital projects for companies with over $1 billion in assets and over $500 million in revenue in the oil and gas and technology sectors. At Cement, he has been instrumental in preparing the company for future investment and ensuring the financial health of the organization. Ali holds both a chartered accountant and certified public accountant designations and a Bachelor of Commerce from the University of Calgary. And so without further ado, here's Ali, CFO at Cement. Hey, Ali, thanks for joining me on The Backbone. And uh, to get started today, because we've got lots to get through with uh, first your career journey, I know that uh, you started your career in the energy and natural resources sector with various progressive roles in finance. Prior to joining Simon as the company's CFO, you were the CFO of clean tech industries. So walk me through your career path till today that led you to the role and how it all started for you. Well, thanks for having me. Really excited to, to, to talk through this and, and kind of go through my history and experience with you. So that path is kind of an interesting journey. I think sometimes there's this myth that's propagated out there that you can manage every aspect of your career path and that everything you do is kind of a linear progression to some predetermined endpoint. But in my experience, that definitely hasn't been the case. I, I liken it more to dropping the ball at the top of some sort of a game and it, and it bounces around and you never end up knowing which slot it's going to fall into at the end. I think you kind of position yourself so that opportunities can present themselves and then you kind of make decisions at points in time and, and, and seize those opportunities, but you just have to be in a place where you can do that. And so that's what I've tried to do over my history, which has been fairly extensive. I started in the energy sector sort of late 90s, early 2000s. And I think I started in the energy sector because that was a function of 
kind of the natural gravitational pull of the Calgary market, um, everything, almost everything at that point in time was focused around energy and, and natural resources. So when you were in the accounting firms and articling, uh, a lot of your clients were natural resource companies and energy service companies. And so that was what you had exposure to and those clients had exposure to you. And so then that was the kind of the, the natural outcome of those relationships was they would uh, then offer you positions in either managers of financial reporting or controllers in oil and gas companies or energy service companies. I was really fortunate to have the opportunity to work with some really talented individuals in early on in my career. And, and that led me to kind of successive opportunities with some of the same people. And I was then kind of referred into more senior roles, but didn't actually have to, I don't think I did a, a, a CV for about 10 years at a point in time, probably from 99, 2000 till about 2010. And uh, that was just by virtue of um, working with some of the same people over and over again, but they also ended up being kind of mentors to me and, and taught me a lot. I started as a controller at Chinook Drilling back in 2000. And prior to that, I was at Deloitte's. I was articling, finishing my articling. And uh, Chinook was a private company at the time, ended up being acquired by Total Energy Services in the early 2000s. It was uh, a public company at the time. And I ended up keeping my role as the controller for the drilling division, but then I expanded it to become the corporate controller for Total Energy as a whole. And so that was a really great role. It, that was my first kind of foray into sort of looking at the overall corporate entity and seeing all of the different business units and getting exposure to budgets and board level reporting. And so it was a really good, really good experience. I spent six years at Total and then took a role as a CFO at a startup exploration and production company. So I went kind of upstream in oil and gas. I knew at the time that was going to be a high risk opportunity, but it kind of seemed like the the right time in my career to kind of step out and take the risk and see what happens. And sometimes you have to do that. It's with those kinds of things, it was going to be fairly binary in terms of the outcome. They raised a bunch of money and, and I'd liken it to a startup very much. So and regardless of the industry, it's kind of the same thing. Either it's it's going to work or 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 not. And, and you'll have to just deal with that binary outcome and, and be comfortable with that in your own mind. Ultimately, that company wasn't successful in finding and developing oil and gas. We were pretty good at raising money, but fell down on some of the exploration side. And so I stayed there for a couple of years, but was then approached by the former CFO of Total, who had moved on by then. And he took an opportunity at a new company as the CEO and needed a CFO. So I went back into energy services at that point and ended up working with you know somebody who was really very close to me and a, and a mentor to me. I think from there, it was, I was there for about three years, but the really big role change for me, because that company was, it wasn't that big. There were probably maybe a hundred or 150 people at that point in time. But I then applied in 2010 after the, the global financial crisis. And it was a bit hard on, on Enseco, which was the company I joined because they were pretty much Alberta focused and we we struggled, and, but we survived and made it out the other side. And then it was kind of time for a change. So I applied for a position with Saxon Energy Services in 2010, and I got the job as the VP Finance. That was kind of a big, uh, a big step out for me because that was a, a relatively large entity, and I hadn't ever 
um, worked at something of that size and that scale and that scope. And I think by that, I mean, like when I joined Saxon, it was 1,700 people in five countries, had about 300 million in revenue at the wow. time. And That's it was, huge. yeah, it was kind of an eye opener because I hadn't, I had no international at the time. And so there was, there were obviously all kinds of really interesting problems that you needed to solve. And you had fairly large groups of people you needed to manage in, in multiple countries and things like that. So I, I spent a fair bit of time uh, learning the international side of the business. It just added a layer of complexity and financial sophistication around hedging, treasury, tax, things that you don't, you do, but you can do kind of very, in a very pedestrian way and in something that's domestic. And so we had a, a pretty massive growth curve there. So by the time I left, kind of three years later, the company had grown to about 3,500 people in 13 countries. It was about 670 million in revenue, I think, at that point. And just the finance group globally that was reporting into me was about 250. Now, not all directly, obviously, but yeah. we were everywhere. And so that was a really interesting challenge, time zones, cultures, um, et cetera. So lots of, lots of learning there and lots of issues that you could really sink your teeth into. So I took quite a bit away from that, that experience. After I left Saxon, I went to a relatively large um, publicly traded energy service company uh, called Western Energy Services. It's about 500 million in revenue and about kind of 1200 people. And then I was there for a couple of years until uh, until the oil price crash in kind of late 2014, early 2015. And I kind of stepped out of there in 2015, kind of March. And um, it was at that point that I kind of started to really think about the, the transition out of energy services. I had some other opportunities in energy services that I could have stepped into in 2015, but I didn't, I just wasn't feeling bullish on on the space and and my view was that at the time um, was that this this was going to be more structural and long lasting and I'd been through a couple of downturns and we'd had to downsize in those and I just wasn't feeling like I wanted to go through that again and and so it was again time to maybe take a risk or step out and do something a little bit different and so I ended up joining a small accounting firm as a partner and I, I knew the two principals prior there too. So it was a bit of a warm relationship and um, went in there and decided to, they had kind of said, well, you can focus on maybe something to do in a more advisory role, contract CFO type stuff, because that was where sort of more of my skill set was based around and, and can do things on financings and things with their existing contract or their existing client base, as well as new clients. And so I started there in 2015 and got a, a few engagements with a, a few different clients. Uh, again, I mean, that was, it was really good to, to kind of branch out and do that because it gave me exposure to different industries. And also that was where my two largest clients, which were Cleantech at the time and, and Cement, where I kind of got my foot in the door on on both and ended up they ended up being fairly long-term contract CFO engagements. But it was good because you 
you know, kind of were able to really see those businesses and help them from a different view. And they didn't, they didn't need somebody full time at those points in their, in their evolution and in their life cycle, but you could still find a way to add value on a fractional basis. And so I think that worked out really well. I ended up being at the accounting firm for about three years. So till about 2018, where I took the role with clean tech as the CFO full-time. And at that point in time, Cement was still at a different a different stage in its progression. And I had suggested and I'd helped Hanif, the CEO, who's a friend of mine and had been even prior there too, just with, I said to him, well, you still need somebody part-time. I'll transition it to a new individual, but I'll help you while we continue to work through who this is going to go to. And I ended up transitioning it in January of 2019 and focused on my other role. And then he approached me about six months later and said that he had completed his Series A financing and that he wanted to bring the CFO role in-house, full-time permanent. And he wanted to know if I was, if I'd be interested in looking at it. And Cement was always an interesting prospect for me because the, the model was so unique and the value proposition was so strong. And I was really, I really enjoyed working with him. And so, yeah, I basically made the leap and, and took the full-time position almost a year ago. So September of 2019, I, I joined. Wow. That's awesome. Thanks for uh, sharing your career journey so far. It's been quite the ride and um, excited uh, to have the opportunity to dig into your experiences at uh, Cement. So before we do that, wh- why don't we spend some time talking a little bit about the company? What is Cement? What does the company do and what is it all about? That's a good question because it's uh, it's something in my experience is unique and doesn't really have a lot of comparability or peers out there. But Cement is basically scientifically transforming the debt recovery industry. We've developed a digital engagement platform that uses behavioral science, data science, and technology to improve the customer experience and to ideally bring about a positive outcome for both the debt holder and the debtor. I think you can think about it in terms of a Venn diagram and if you had sort of the three circles of data science, behavioral science and technology, Cement would live at the middle of the, the intersection of those three circles. I think in, in our opinion, uh, the process is antiquated and broken. I mean, I don't think it's changed at all for decades. And so that really was a, I think, an entry point uh, into uh, doing something different and bringing a, a different solution to this problem. But but really, I think it's about the perspective and how we address it. And because we think, like, and, and I think in particular, that there's a real lack of empathy and understanding in terms of most companies' abilities to help their customers navigate difficult financial situations. I mean, this was true pre-COVID, but it's it's even more true now, I would say. Um, and I think Cement's platform addresses this need in the market. In the sense of what Cement does, I think companies previously have struggled to figure out how to engage with their customers and and to do it with empathy and compassion for people that are in a in a tough spot and trying to find out how they can help and to find a solution that provides a a mutual kind of a mutual win. And so I think that's where behavioral science and data science can really drive uh, positive outcomes. 
Yeah, for sure. And and that's a great segue into the next part of the question, which I was going to ask you, which is, so you mentioned that Zemend has developed an engagement platform that's designed to better engage, treat, and retain financially at-risk customers. Uh, now, Zemend's mission is to digitally transform the engagement experience for those consumers by using the behavioral science, artificial intelligence, and machine learning, like you mentioned. And so, These days, it's often said that data is the new oil. And as someone who's worked in the energy and natural resources sector, who's now the CFO of a company like Cement that's driven by data, what's your take on this? That's a that's an interesting question. It's a it's a good question. I, I would generally agree with that statement. What's interesting about it, though, is as someone who lives in Calgary and works for a technology company, I think I've got a bit of a unique viewpoint on that particular statement. I've seen firsthand the impact of the I would call it the transition to almost a, a post industrial economy and what what type of impact that's having on Calgary and the reliance on energy and natural resources that has caused a kind of a, I would say a significant amount of hardship as commodity prices have struggled over the past few years. It's, it's also provided opportunity though, on the flip side. And I think um, cement is just one example of the green shoots that are emerging in Calgary's kind of growing technology ecosystem, if you will. There are so many smart and motivated people in this city. And, and I think, you're starting to see people looking at this transition to to seize opportunities and create new businesses that would kind of never have been imagined possible even just a few years ago. I think Cement being a, a great example of that in, in terms of its its history and its life cycle. But there is a there's a pretty strong case to be made that those those companies are are using data and analytics to to basically drive new forms of value creation and and it's and it's pretty exciting to be involved in yeah no doubt like you mentioned i think you have a very unique lens having worked on on with energy and natural resources in that sector uh, what would you say are some of the similarities and differences between the technology and energy space mm-hmm. that's uh, that's a good question i mean having seen kind of smaller and larger companies and and looking across industries i'd say there's a couple of ways to look at the question uh, i think the first way is that there are a lot of similarities, I would say, in, in startup and early stage uh, companies that are, call it agnostic to the industry in which the, that startup happens to, happens to participate. So, I mean, thinking back to the various companies I've been involved in, early stage companies are always nimble and execution driven. I think even to the point where I was involved with Cement in the early days, you have to be able to be broad across a wide variety of areas to the point where I was doing payroll, setting up the accounting system, the chart, even running to Best Buy to buy computers and things like that for, you know, when we first started out. And so those types of experiences have a thread of commonality, regardless of the industry. And you, you seem to do that at every early stage or startup company. And there's at that point in time, at the, the early stages, there's more of an emphasis on speed rather than precision. 
And then kind of as you grow, you, you kind of become more process driven because you, you can't really scale when everybody's just doing whatever they feel like doing. And so, I mean, you always try to balance this against being kind of overly bureaucratic so that you can still can still achieve, achieve your objectives, but doing them, doing it in a, in a, in a responsible, in a responsible way. I would say the biggest difference between specifically between technology and natural resources is the, the lack of physical assets in, in the technology company. And so this whole thing about everything that I've had or been involved in the valuation metric and what people focused on was based around going to the field or looking at something that you could, a barrel of oil that was a producible asset that was sold on the market or a drilling rig or a service rig or something like that. It had a high degree of tangibility around it. And now the other side of that is when you look at Simmons balance sheet today, there are a bunch of desks and monitors and Dells, but the real value of the company is is the intellectual property and, and the people. The conversations you would have with bankers was quite different because with natural resources, your your banks would always lend against your assets and things like that. So a lot less subjectivity around what a company was worth because the, the comparables were easy to benchmark. And you could look at a range and come up with uh, broad-based agreement on something, but with technology, the valuation ranges are can be quite broad. I think because of the intangible nature of the asset base, but also because of the wide degree of variability in the business models themselves. I, I, I mean that. That all being said, I think what was interesting is everywhere I've been that I can think of, the regardless of the industry, it has always come back to the quality and the dedication of the people in. That, that drove the ultimate success of the uh, of the entity. Yeah, for sure. And this is a great segue into the next part, which is recently Cement raised the $50 million Series B. So although uh, I think when you're referring to bankers, at the, you're comparing the experience to the energy sector, I think you're referring to debt. But Cement recently raised the $50 million Series B, one of the largest Series B rounds in, in recent memory for a Alberta-based company anyways. And the round was led by Anovia Capital's growth fund with participation from a group of returning and new investors, including Ignition, Impression, uh, BDC, and others. What was your biggest learnings from that raise that you would share for finance leaders, especially those raising in an economic climate like we see today with COVID-19? That was interesting because we started our process on the Series B quite early. And so that was in February. And so probably the first piece of advice I would give is you get well out ahead of the the need for cash. And making sure that you're raising when your balance sheet is already quite strong, because as you and the world have seen is things can come out of nowhere and, and throw your plans out of whack. But we started those, those discussions in, in February of 2020, and we sort of had our initial term sheet in early March. And that is interesting timing because we ended up going fully remote in mid-March. And so coordinating the team on the due diligence was a bit of a challenge because half the process, half of the due diligence, the confirmatory due diligence 
was done while the entire team was remote. And so luckily we had a, a very strong partner in Inovia and great to deal with and to work with through this, but we were able to close in 30 days. And so I think that with our particular situation, the one thing that we've always focused on in our model was our balance sheet and our liquidity. So we always had a very strong handle on liquidity and on our cash balance. And so starting the process early, we had backup plans in the sense that we had a, uh, a debt facility from a bank that we could draw on at a moment's notice. And so all of those things extended our runway in terms of our ability to you know, negotiate terms and to close. And so we were never going to be put into a situation where we were feeling nervous about our cash position. And I think one of the biggest things that I've taken away from, from this process was if you can raise that kind of round during COVID, it probably doesn't get any harder than that. And I think the other thing is that you've got to have lots of optionality in terms of different avenues you can pursue to extend runway in case something unforeseen happens and uh, it knocks your timeline a bit out of whack. Right. And being able to raise where you've got not only the optionality, but raising from an area of strength where you've got cash and you've got backup options definitely sets you up uh, well uh, to go through that regardless of, of the climate. Last question here before we jump into our quick fire round, and that is, what is the biggest misconception about the finance function within growth stage software companies like Cement? I would say probably the biggest, biggest misconception, I think, is, is, that, is that finance is purely compliance-driven function and, and can't be used to provide any strategic insight or value. I think that that is categorically false. I think finance is numerical insight. And if it's, if it's reliable and accurate and timely, I should add to that, it can provide a key strategic advantage in terms of being able to allow a company to change course or change plans and do it at velocity because there's an underlying belief in the numbers that are being presented. And so I think it, finance is the key to driving better decision-making within companies, if it's, if it's used correctly from a forecasting perspective and um, an understanding perspective in terms of the, the historical insight that it provides. All right. Yeah, for sure. Now, what I'd love to do is jump into our quick fire round. The way this works, I'll ask you some questions. You'll have 10 to 15 seconds to respond to each. How does that sound? Sounds good. Okay, let's do it. So what's your go-to online resource for all things finance related? I would say a couple that I would, I would go to fairly often would be Fast Company, TechCrunch, anything to get a sense of kind of market dynamics on valuations, and then also to get a, a sense of financing rounds and on new businesses that are coming up. Yep, yep. Your, your favorite productivity hack? Uh, that's got to be probably my, my Sunday evening calendar review. I look at kind of my week ahead. And, and then I have been somewhat ruthless on my meeting schedule. So I'll look out the next five days and I will cut things out of the schedule and I'll shorten them just to claw back time in my 
calendar so that I can I can reclaim part of my week. Yeah, especially true these days with a whole bunch of remote meetings um, and and Zoom calls and whatnot. Important to be ruthless with the, with the time. One thing that you don't leave the desk before finishing up for the day. I would say it would be any of the email requests from a CEO would be one. I would at least have a response or an idea of timing of a response. And I would say the second would be the anything to do with bringing on new positions. So from a recruiting position, recruiting perspective, there are sometimes questions regarding option grants or, or salary levels or things like that where we need a we need a, a quick turnaround so that we can get offers out the door so that we don't those two things are critical in priority in terms of being able to secure talent and not delaying that process. Right. What's uh, one jargon that makes you cringe? <laughs> There's so many. I, I would say, well, two that come to mind would be out of the box and, uh, and synergy. I think those two would be my ones. <laughs> those are classics. <laughs> yeah, those are definitely classics. And, and lastly, what's the best advice you've received so far in your career? There's been a fair bit of it. I would say probably the best was, and maybe kind of rethink this a bit, but don't overcompensate for your weaknesses such that they such that it dilutes your strengths. That's great advice. Ali, thank you so much for the time you spent uh, with with the backbone today. Really appreciated your insights, chatting about your career journey, making the transition from energy and natural resources sector to technology, talking about cement and what uh, the company is all about, taking us behind the curtain a bit to how uh, the company raised a $50 million Series B during uh, COVID, essentially. And uh, it was really an, an awesome chat learning about your experiences. So thank you very much. Thank you. It was great, uh, great to be invited. Thank you. Awesome. Take care. Bye. And that wraps up another episode of The Backbone. Check out some of the other awesome finance leaders featured on The Backbone from companies like Ecobee, Wealthsimple, League, and many more. Thank you for listening all the way through and joining me on this journey inside finance at a tech company. Until next time, take care.